0: In our studies in God's Word on Sunday mornings, we are working our way through the book of Nehemiah, and we'll continue with that even this morning. Where we left off last week at the end of chapter 9 was with God's people humbling themselves in His presence and actually entering into a, a written agreement with God. Today, we'll deal with the content of that written agreement. Last week involved confession of sin. Last week involved worship and praise. Last week involved uh, chapter 9 expressing their intention to walk with the Lord and to obey him. And now in chapter 10 today, we have it made explicit, the content of that contract or covenant of sorts it's not the typical Hebrew word that they use for uh, uh, covenant, but similar idea. It does say they cut a contract with God. So, formal, uh, solemn language. And today we're going to get to the content of that. So, in chapter 8, we see the people return to the word. In chapter 9, we saw repentance from sin. And in chapter 10, uh, James Boyce, longtime PCA pastor, calls it a formal commitment to change. Formal commitment to change. As I said, at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, it's described as a binding agreement that they make. And then I likened it to a modern-day application of sorts of Bill and Vonette Bright, uh, uh, founders of Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew, how they made a written contract with God and signed it Uh, becoming God's voluntary bondservants. And we're going to look at something akin to that as well today at the end of our time together. But right now, we are in chapter 10, and we'll treat all of it. And yet, with that said, I'm going to read um, not the first 27 verses, which consists largely of difficult for me to pronounce names, but we're going to uh, pick up at verse 28 through the rest of your, uh, the chapter. You can find this in your pew Bible, page 477. On to the next. And I've also pro- provided it for you as your convenience uh, in the back of the sermon outline. So here in Nehemiah, chapter 10, verses 28 and following. <clears throat> the rest of the people. "...the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules, and His statutes, verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year, and the exaction of every debt." We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burn offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. Verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, "...as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers." We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, often uh, this prayer of illumination, my mind, harkens to those words uh, recorded in uh, the book of Romans, that the things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction wrote uh, the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, first century, but it holds true today for your church. And so you have seen fit to preserve your word, precious and magnificent promises, uh, by which we have everything that we need for faith and practice, everything we need to know the way of salvation and to believe in Jesus, and to walk in manners worthy of our calling in him. Would you use this ancient text once again, and by the freshness and illumination of your spirit, would you apply it to our hearts, to our lives, to our minds, so that we would glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Restoration continued. They're back in the land. Let the good times roll, but not exactly. They didn't just live happily ever after. They made some progress, but there were halts to the progress. And there were fits and starts with the building and the rebuilding. And, and there was opposition from without and opposition from within. And injustice and things that had to be dealt with and addressed and confronted. And ultimately, part of the lesson of the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is to impress upon us that restoration doesn't come in all its fullness until it comes in Christ and the Messiah of God, even he who is coming into the world. So, letter A notes on the passage, this section will be more of a brief overview. Uh, I'll make a few specific comments, but uh, we're not going to milk this section for all its work worth. We're going to focus instead more on letter B, the biblical elaborations and applications to help us uh, make sense out of this and apprehend it, to believe the gospel, and to apply it to our lives. So some notes on the passage, letter A in your outline. So this list of leaders—it's twenty-seven verses, which sounds like a lot, and yet if you look at it, I mean, I did put it in a little smaller font to make it fit, but it's—it's it's only a paragraph because it's just about three names per verse, right? Um, and so, who do we have? We have Nehemiah, the governor, is listed. Uh, Zedekiah. Uh, The family of Sariah would have included Ezra. That's, I think, why he's not specifically spelt out here. Um, So you've got, in terms of groupings, you've got priests, you've got Levites. Remember, Levites were also servants in the house of God. They were, in a sense, assistant worship leaders, assistants to the priesthood. And there's a fellow named here, Hashabiah. And back in chapter 3, we see that he was one of those that helped to rebuild the wall. So we've got um, the names of priests, the names of Levites, the names of heads of household uh, representing their families, dozens more families, right? And, And the people as a whole. So that's part of what we are to see here in the first 27 verses. And then we see these collective commitments that that they've made, verses 28 through 31, uh, just for a break point there that continues on, really. Uh, Collective commitments, these are voluntary vows. Uh, We mentioned last week that they put themselves under a curse and an oath, verse 29. We mean business, we're taking this seriously. As kids out on the playground, or with your siblings growing up in the household, you make promises to each other. And uh, sometimes you'd say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Meaning, I'm really telling the truth here. If I don't, or if I fail to keep up my end of the bargain, you can do terrible things to me. Uh, It's supposed to be serious, uh, grave, right? So these are voluntary vows that the people are making as they've returned to God's word. And we see this in these chapters, in chapters 8 through 10, this emphasis on God's word. To walk in it, to keep it, to observe it. To observe in the biblical sense is not the sense of the scientific method where you just kind of sit back impassively and see what's happening observation. No, biblical observation means you do it. You implement it into your life. You live it out. You do it as a lifestyle. I'll quote Pastor James Boyce uh, that I mentioned earlier from 10th president I'll quote him several many times briefly during this message. And he says that many people have expressed sorrow for sin and acknowledged their distress Without changing. Last week I made a distinction between confession and repentance, saying that confession should be accompanied by repentance. So there's this emphasis on the word of God. Walk in it, keep it, observe it. Uh, spoken of the word is spoken of as the commandments, the ordinances, the statutes. Right? It's been said of the Ten Commandments, only half in jest. They're not called the Ten Suggestions. This is not a negotiation. God has set the terms. So they say they've taken on these voluntary vows on themselves. Um, more literally, they place themselves under the commandment. They're voluntarily in a New Testament sense, uh, it speaks several times of voluntarily lining up under authority. We saw that recently, our studies together in First Peter. Voluntarily lining up under, and that's what God's people are doing here, 5th century B.C., and it's a model still for us today, to place oneself under the commandment, to place oneself under obligation. And then we see much about giving resources for the house of God. Now, if you look, uh, you, you may be looking on your device or a hard copy of the Bible, but if you do go ahead and look at that sermon outline on the back side, I have underlined nine times it mentions the house of the Lord, house of our God. Nine times. Great emphasis here through repetition and here in verses 32 through 39, we see mention of this house of God. Well, what does that mean, the house of God? For the service of the house of God. For the work of the house of God. For the worship that was ongoing. And for the worship workers, the worship leaders. This is not in your notes, but if you're a jotter, I give you three Ps that I think are very Significant, place, presence, and people. Place, presence, and people. This is talking about the Jerusalem temple, uh, the rebuilding under Zerubbabel, and the restoration of worship. That is the place, the temple. Now, the temple couldn't contain God, right? We believe that God is omnipresent, that he's present everywhere. Everywhere. And the scriptures are replete with acknowledging who built the temple in the first place. Solomon's temple, it's sometimes called, because King Solomon, son of David, right? He was the temple builder. And in his prayers, we can go and we can see how he recognized that this dwelling place for God, it's not that it would contain him or that he needed it. And that thought is continued in the New Testament, at least in Acts chapter 17. So God is not confined to a space, but place is important because that's where his presence, our second P, place and then presence, that's where his presence dwelt. That's where the glory of God, the kabod, the the glory cloud of God descended and dwelt. And that's what I mentioned earlier in that song that we sang about to us he'll condescend. It's not bad condescension. It's good condescension. It is, as one theologian termed it, God stooping to our level, God speaking as it were baby talk. It's God making himself understood to the third P, people, place, that. No locality, no no localized uh, place could contain or hold our God, but he chose to have his presence dwell there, and so he is to be worshipped there by whom? By people. That's where God deigns to have due with his people. This is not only condescension, this is accommodation to audience. This is God making himself known. This is revelation through his word, through his presence, through the word of God. And now we have the full canon of scripture, the New Testament books as well, 27 of those. And now we have the word of God come in the flesh, Jesus, God incarnate. And so mention is made here. I'm not going to go into particular detail about the various offerings, but we see the yearly offering, uh, verse 32. They they gave financially, they gave money to support the worship and work of the house of God. In verse 34, uh, the wood offering at the appointed time as per the law. There's a rotation system here to cover the year. There was a constant need for supplies for the house of God. And so, They set in place a rotation system. Verses 35 through 39, we see mention of the first fruits and and tithes. And most everybody knows a tithe is a tenth part. And this is to be brought into the chambers of the storehouse. Verse 38. Giving resources for the house of God. Over and over, emphasize the house of God. And... uh, Boyce once again says, it is hard to imagine a more formal agreement on the part of the people or a more intense commitment to forward spiritual change. And that is the point. These people have said that they are entering into a voluntary contract with God in what I'm terming covenant renewal As I said before, we see other instances of covenant renewal, such as uh, Joshua 24 and in Deuteronomy and things. So, now this brings us to some biblical elaborations and applications. Where else do we see these sorts of principles taught and modeled in the scriptures? Letter B on your outline Uh, Numbers 1 and 2 kind of go hand in hand, so we'll address them in tandem. The principle of separation is holiness unto the Lord. The principle of separation is holiness unto the Lord. And number two, the prohibitions on intermarriage are to avoid idolatry. Separation is holiness unto the Lord. And intermarriage, what's what's that about? It's ultimately about avoiding idolatry. And it's appropriate for us as people living in North Carolina and our friends online in the year 2021 to think, well, okay, this is a nice story. People of God returned to the word and they, they had rebuilt the wall and they experienced some level of restoration. Maybe it wasn't complete. Well, that's very nice. What does that have to do with me? Again, to quote Pastor Boyce, it is the same for us in our response as Christians to the teachings of Jesus Christ. If we will not obey him, live holy lives, and be his witnesses in this world, it is certain that no one else will. The responsibility is ours. Now, of course, it's by grace, of course, it's by faith, of course, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's appropriate to commit oneself to the Lord. So number one, the principle of separation we see from verse 28 is holiness unto the Lord. It says, the people, priests, etc., etc., all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. That's actually a technical term, the peoples of the lands, the remnant of the Canaanite inhabitants, the, um, those displaced and, and relocated by the Assyrians hundreds of years earlier. And, and, and so what gives there? What is this all about? Well, as I said, points one and two go together. It, this prohibition on intermar- intermarriage was ultimately to avoid idolatry. This goes back to the law of God, right? Right? In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 20. of verse 24 it says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. We saw this a year ago in the companion book. Um, Ezra in chapter 6 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 in chapter 6 it says uh, explicitly to worship the Lord that they were separated for the purpose of worshiping the Lord and of course him only in chapter 9 it warns about idolatry it says been separated from the peoples of the land with their abominations what are the abominations Serving false gods, serving idols made with human hands, engaging in fertility cult rituals, engaging even in human sacrifice. That's why it was so detestable to God. That's why it was so appalling to God. That's why he separated them from these people. Although, as we saw several weeks ago, God is always a missionary God. And anyone who would take upon themselves the, the, the faith of Yahwism to follow Jehovah, the Lord God, and him alone, the sojourner, the foreigner, they were welcome, right? Rahab the harlot, Ruth the Moabite, uh, Uriah the Hittite, and others. So it's not ultimately ethnic, but religious. Separation from foreign wives... There's separation from something, and there's separation to something. Separation from foreign wives, from the peoples of the lands, from false gods. In a New Testament sense, in Revelation 18.4, it says, Come out of her. The her is Babylon. Babylon was a code word for the Roman Empire. And, and that way of life it means worldliness come out of her come out of Babylon come out of Rome come out of worldliness my people lest you take part in her sins revelation eighteen four. God's people should be peculiar peculiar not in the sense of weird but in the sense of distinctive in the sense of this holiness a separation from something and separation to something to the Lord only. Nehemiah ten twenty-eight. All who separated themselves from the peoples of the land and also to the law of God. Separation from these false things, these idols, false gods. Separation to the Lord only. Separation to the law of God. In the church today, uh, we mentioned at the end of last week, repentance. Repentance is to and from, right? We turn away from sin and going our own way, and we turn to God in faith and reliance, and the fruit of that is new obedience. It's a changed life. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ constrains us to action. If you're a new creature, you bring forth fruit then in keeping with your repentance. All right, next, and we'll touch on these but briefly items three and four on keeping the Sabbath and what about tithing? As far as biblical elaborations and applications for us today, as, as people who are sincere in their devotion to the Lord, as people who are here as worshipers or joining us online, as people who want to. Uh, keep God's word, and apply it to their lives. What do we discern from this on keeping the Sabbath? Well, at verse 31 in our passage, Nehemiah 10, it says no commerce. And uh, also mention is made of not only uh, no commerce on Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath, but the Sabbath year for the land is also mentioned. And... An example of this, at least the vestiges of which remain in our culture today, it's getting obliterated. Lines of distinction are being very much blurred. But uh, if you're old enough, some of you will remember the old blue laws, some things, that, some stores that would not be open on Sundays. That's why many of us have, part of why many of us have the freedom to assemble and to worship still on Sundays. Most people don't work on Sundays, some do. Why is that? that? That harkens back to this principle of weekly Sabbath. The New Testament observance, uh, it's now the Lord's Day. There's some continuity and there's some discontinuity. There's some change. But we observe the Lord's Day. And what is the Lord's Day to be about? It's to be largely a day of worship and rest, primarily. A day of worship and rest. And if we had time... We could look in Isaiah chapter 58 and, and, and when the Lord uh, excoriates his own people because they don't, they don't delight in the Sabbath. They delight instead on doing their own pleasure. And what was their own pleasure in Isaiah 58? You go and look there. I believe it was to work, as we term it today, 24 7. They didn't have a day different. They didn't observe a day of worship and rest. Why? I'd say two reasons. One, they were greedy. They, you know, work a seventh day, you make more money. Uh, And why else? Because of lack of faith. Lack of trust in God's ability to provide. Oh, we can't do that. We can't take a day off. Then we won't have enough. That's about Faith in the Lord. So the Lord's Day is to be a day of worship, a day of rest. And, of course, we make um, provision also for two other things, deeds of mercy and deeds of necessity. Deeds of mercy, acts of mercy and deeds of necessity. Those also are appropriate for the Lord's Day. Some of us are stricter Sabbatarians, stricter in our Lord's Day observance than others. Hey, we could have, there, there's books written on it, and, and, and we must press on. But we should at least think about what is our practice of observing the Lord's day in our own lives, in our, the life of our immediate family. Do we address it? Do we speak to it? What do we participate in, and what do we refrain from? And do we worship just when the mood strikes and when we're, you know, we feel like it? And we we suffer from FOMO that the millennials do today, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Well, yeah, I might go to church, but there's this going on, but there's that. Well, it's an entertainment culture. The opportunities, well, I guess partial shutdown has dampened it down a little bit, but you can stay home and have Netflix. I mean, uh, you know, we've got a plethora of things available to us today. And each one of us must take stock. As for me and my house, what does it mean to keep the Lord's Day? How will we observe that in our lives? What does God's Word say about it? Ask your elders, ask your elders their views, their understanding. Read the Westminster Standards, delve into God's Word, keeping the Sabbath. What about tithing? Over and over. In the last several verses in our chapter, it talks about supporting the work of the house of God. Now, again, God isn't limited to a place, but he is deigned due to meet with his people, to have his presence there. God is everywhere. We can worship him in all our lives, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, to all of the glory of God, yes. But there's something special about corporate worship, and there's something needful about giving to support the work of God, to support the local church, to invest in kingdom work. And so my advice to you would be, there's other places too, but I've suggested point four, that you read the book of Malachi. It's only a handful of chapters. You can read it this afternoon in in a short while. Read the book of Malachi, especially chapter three. Our, Our chapter, Nehemiah 10, talks about bringing into the storehouse And Nehemiah 3, verses 6 through 12, particularly verse 10, talks about that storehouse. And then go to the New Testament. Again, there are many other places that you can go, but read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And go before the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have me do with my treasure? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What should be my attitude as a steward of resources? What should be in my part in contributing to the care and upkeep of our meeting place as a good steward? Recognizing that not a tenth part, not 10% is God's, but 100% of my resources are God's. And I am to be a faithful steward allocating them wisely. And it's important to support gospel workers as well. Again, I quote James Boyce if Christians do not support the Lord's work, the Lord's work will not be supported. Well, that may seem rather self evident. How about if we go to God's Word? I'll I'll read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, In your pew Bible, this is page 1149. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And there's a principle all by itself, right? To give oneself first to the Lord, and then also to commit to supporting gospel workers. And then verse 9 Talks about the poverty of Christ, that through his poverty we have been made rich, that he emptied himself of glory and even went to the cross to the point of death to redeem us as a people for his own possession. Our last point this morning is on the dangers of neglect. The dangers of neglect, that's the last phrase in Nehemiah 10. It's short, but it's pithy. We will not neglect the house of God. To neglect means to forsake or to leave. Isn't it good that the gospel tells us that our God will not forsake us? Our God will not leave us, desert us, abandon us. And here the people in like fashion are reciprocating. They are saying, we will not neglect the house of God. We will not, uh, today we might say, to leave it in the lurch. We use, we use that expression, right? To leave something in the lurch. I won't leave you in the lurch. Don't worry, I'll, I'll be there. I won't leave you in the lurch. Where does that come from? It actually comes from a French game, a board game, similar to uh, backgammon. And it means to, to be in hopeless straits. Another, another board game, cribbage. There's a place that you have to go and you know, your opponent can sort of kind of lap you on the board. It means you, know, you don't have a chance. It means to abandon in a difficult position without help. And the people of God here in Nehemiah's day are saying they won't do that. I've listed a number of cross-references there for you. Um... Matthew 23, Jesus is talking about the weightier matters of the law, not to neglect justice and mercy and things like that. I'd like you to look up all those New Testament cross-references that I provided there for you. I'll just mention them. The First Timothy 1, Paul tells his young protege, young apprentice, don't neglect what? The gift of God that is within you. Hebrews chapter 2, much more generally, do not neglect so great a salvation. Hebrews 10, the classic passage, many of us could, could recite, do not neglect or forsake the meeting together, assembling of yourselves together. And again, I'm preaching to the choir, as evidenced by your ministry of presence here today, your attendance here today yourselves. I hope our friends online will continue to go before the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, when when would you like me to resume meeting in person with the church to be present for the preaching of the word of God and for the sacraments? Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality. And verse 16 in the same chapter, do not neglect doing good and sharing why cuz it's pleasing to God it says that in the verse it's pleasing to God when we do good works out of hearts of faith and love for Christ and we share with others it it pleases God you wanna please God That's why you're here today that's why you're listening today last thing These people have reduced it to writing. They made a binding contract with God. I referenced Bill and Vonett Brights doing something similar in their marriage, uh, signing over the rights of their life to God, so to speak. I'm going to look at this document briefly with you in just a moment, but before I do so, let me just couch this a little bit. This is not to supplant your membership vows. If you are a member of this church or any other PCA church. You've made five promises, right? And the first three are about the gospel. It says that you're a sinner, that Jesus saves sinners, and that you want to follow him. Very quick synopsis there, but that's what the first three membership vows talk about. The fifth one talks about submitting to the government and discipline in the church. The fourth one talks about supporting the church, to the best of your ability in its worship and work. To support it to the best of your ability. What does that mean to support it? Well, a ministry of presence and of, of giving as well. To the best of your ability. Those are the membership vows that one voluntarily makes when they publicly identify as a follower of Christ and join this church or one of our churches. So what I have before you, I wrote this document. It's based on Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. Um, I'm not going to collect it from you. It is not meant to uh, um, be a higher standard or, or a, anything like that different than your membership vows. It's meant to be something for your consideration personally. Now, the people of God, Nehemiah's day, they did this publicly. They signed it, and they signed their names to it jointly. They were entering into covenant as a covenant community, making promises voluntarily to God and doing it together. I'm not asking at Grace Presbyterian that you hand this to me or, or one of the elders, but to just consider it. Spend some time on your knees, or you know, if you can't kneel physically, then humbly before God with your Bible open. Spend some time in Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10. And if this is an encouragement to you, I won't read the whole thing to you. You can read for yourself. But it talks about honoring the Lord in family life, in professional life, and in your connection and participation in support of the local church. And you might consider, like Bill and Von Bright, signing your name to it. I have one. I keep it in, in my hard copy Bible. I'm going to leave it between you and the Lord as a way for you to reflect on your commitment to the one true God, to serve no others, and to unite with and support the body of Christ on earth, the local church. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we can believe in Christ only if you grant us the gift of faith. We know that we can walk with Christ and obey your word and commandments only because you've given us your Holy Spirit. We want to abide in you, we want your word to richly dwell within us. We want to be filled with your spirit. And we do wish to walk after you, and we do wish to bear fruit that will remain and that will glorify you. And we thank you that you bring us into relationship not only with yourself, but with, into the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that there are ordinances of the church and, and officers of the church. It's hard to read your word and not see that. And so help us to soberly take stock before you and to present ourselves, all that we are, present our bodies to you as living sacrifices, all that we are, all that we have, all that we own, all that we do, all that we say, to surrender control of our lives to you, our gracious God. We hang on Jesus for our salvation. We depend on your spirit to walk with you. We pray in Christ's name.